All right, today is the last week of our summer series called Finding God. And uh, interesting thing about finding God is that it's not as easy as it might seem. If there's a creator, it seems it should be easy to find the creator and relate with the creator, but it has been very difficult, very difficult. Now, since the beginning of time, humankind has been seeking God, trying to find God everywhere, finding God in, in nature and surrounding and coming up with all different kinds of, of religions. There's about 214 formal organized religions, and then there are tribal communities with their own sort of subsets, and everybody's got their own beliefs in their own head. So everybody's trying to find God, trying to define God, and then uh, what does he want maybe for me, or how can I appease him so that he'll bless my life and answer my prayers? I mean, everybody that has ever existed throughout the course of all humankind is in some degree finding God. Now, one thing that's true in this whole humankind journey in God is that the notion that there is a creator is the most widely held concept in human history. The most widely held concept in human history is that there is a creator. People have different ideas, again, have invented different religions about what that might look like, but it has always been understood near 100% of humankind for the course of history believes there's a creator. The most widely held notion in human history. Up until about, I don't know, 100, 200 years ago when the scientific method sort of pushes out God a little bit, and that's what's supposed to happen. The scientific method, you've got to find answers, and you're not allowed to bring in the supernatural. That's by definition. It would be terrible science if you said, well, that's supernatural, that's supernatural. I mean, we wouldn't go anywhere. And so the scientific method kind of pushes out God, and as a result, we've been discovering things that we used to think were about God are actually about just science and nature, laws of physics, chemistry. And so God, over the last century or two, has been pushed into fewer and fewer spaces. So now it is not as widely held that there is a creator. About 20% of Americans believe there is no creator, 20%. That's a massive number because historically it's been about 97. About 20 years ago, that dipped to about 88. Uh, now it's, it's only 80% believe that there is a God. And that number is shrinking pretty rapidly. So here we have the most widely held concept in human history that there is a God that's at risk a little bit here lately for reasons that we'll talk about. So it's the most widely held concept, yet God seems to be so hard to find because he's simply not visible. Everybody historically virtually has believed that there's a God, yet he's so difficult to find because he can't be seen, right? This is 1 John 4, 12. No one has ever seen God. Very simple, very plain language. No one's ever seen God, so it's difficult. But it doesn't mean finding God is impossible. We just have to want to find him because he has made himself known to a degree. He's made himself known to a degree. He's the eternal God, so mortal, finite people will never know God fully. I think we'll spend eternity trying to delve the depths of who this infinite God is. But he has made himself known to a degree. So we just need to be attuned to finding him, and we need to kind of know where to look to find him. That's what the summer series has been about. So we've talked about finding God in nature, right? You can know something of the creator through his creation. We talked about finding God in our minds. If we're made in his image, these minds are wired to connect with God. Finding God in silence, just having the space to connect with and commune with God. Finding God in family. This was uh, kind of a big deal week for us because if God is father, uh, that means we can actually experience the goodness of God and the love of God in our own home, in our marriages and as parents and as kids. I uh, talked about finding God in Jesus a couple of weeks ago, and then last week, one of the, my favorite worship services ever, truly, was last week, finding God in art. 
If you missed it, you might wanna check it out. Lots of music, lots of artistic expressions, just finding God in creativity, our creativity, and connecting with the creator in that way. This week, we're gonna end our series talking about finding God in church. <laughs> now, hang on, I know you're laughing, hang on. Okay, that's offensive, it's very offensive. I'm a pastor of a church. Uh, obviously, the, uh, the laughing was a laugh track, but I'm telling you, a lot of people would laugh at finding God at church because they've had experiences in church that were not good. They had experiences in church that were actually probably in their lives the most far from God that could be possible. And this story tends to be coming out as sort of a common narrative that if there's any place where I have most trouble finding God, it's in church. So we're gonna talk about that a bit, but I also wanna be very clear that that's not everybody's experience. That was not my experience. I found God through church. I found God through Rancho Church, right? The only church I've ever been to. Only church I'm allowed to ever exist in for the rest of my life, right? It's a law somewhere. This church, when I was about 13 years old, opened its doors to youth on Tuesday nights. I lived right down the road. I was, you know, very insecure kid and didn't have a lot of connections. My family was a total disaster. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna walk to Rancho Church on Tuesday nights and, and play some games with some leaders. And, and then I found out over time that they actually did care about me and they wanted to get to know me. And like all these youth leaders who pour into our kids' lives now, those youth leaders then poured into my life. And they showed me a little tiny piece of the love of God to this 13-year-old kid. And as a result, over time, I wanted to do the same for other kids and became a youth pastor and was a youth pastor for 13 years and just a great story. I found God in church. I found God in this church. But I think if we're gonna be honest about life and church life, I think we have to know that that is not the normal experience. And maybe increasingly the normal experience is I do not find God in church. And there's a lot of studies behind that. There's a lot of data behind that now, right? We study everything. Uh, we've studied why people are leaving the church in droves and continuing to leave the church in droves, droves to the point where right now at this very moment, I'm talking about now, right now, people are leaving the church at a faster pace than any time in human history, now. And if we're gonna talk about finding God in church where we certainly should find God, we've gotta ask the question, well, why are so many millions of people leaving? Well, we know the answer, why? I'm gonna give you the, the list. This is the list in terms of why people leave. There's been a history of horrific religious cults that have ruined count, uh, countless lives. And, and those stories are on your streaming channels, right? You can probably find a dozen documentaries of terrible, abusive, horrific cults uh, streaming on all of the platforms. And so these stories are becoming more and more you know, widely known, and so that's becoming more associated. Well, church means weird. Church means abusive. You know very well the stories of money-hungry, manipulative preachers with lavish lifestyles, right? Manipulating the congregation. You give money to God, and God will give money back to you. You give money to God, and God will answer your prayers and heal your disease and all that stuff. And these stories are gonna become commonplace, televangelists and all that stuff. It's becoming kind of cliche. Fake healers preying on desperate people. Fake healers preying on desperate people. Uh, I've been in church work for a very long time. I've been a vocational pastor for 30 years. I've uh, been all over the place in this town, in Southern California. I had denominational roles statewide and, and nationally. I have seen a lot of stuff, including some of these healing services. 
And uh, just one in particular, and I've been to at least a dozen of them. And I just go, early on, I was going to kind of be open-minded about some stuff. And I went to one, and I won't mention any names or places, but went into the lobby and they had us kind of corralled in various places and was with a whole group of people. And there were these greeters that were just amazing greeters. I mean, they were all smiles and they were really getting to know you and asking a bunch of questions and, hey, what's your name and where do you live, where you come from and why are you here? And all right, okay, very cool. Well, welcome on in. And you go in, there's a bunch of worship and a bunch of stuff and then the, the, the healer comes up, right? And he says, you know what? I, uh, I'm hearing from the Lord. There's a person here named uh, John and I think there's some back issues. Is there a John here with back issues? Murmur, murmur, murmur. Well, might be from whatever, the city of Orange. I'm John from the city of Orange and I have back problems. How did he know that's a miracle, right? Well, how do you get that information? From the greeters, you know, and they were all on staff and they're all doing exactly what they're supposed to do, feeding the information to the healer and people are being manipulated, manipulated and taken advantage of. And over time, people start realizing this. And the people that are hurt as a result is extraordinary hurt. And now you're not finding God in church anymore because it's just a game. Unthinking people accepting ancient mythologies, you're not allowed to, to embrace modern science. You're not allowed to think that maybe our interpretation isn't quite you know, right. And maybe we can use some new information to have some new thoughts and some new interpretations without being labeled a heretic, right? Child abuse scandals, this is the worst in my mind, that have been covered up and we're not just talking about one church or one denomination, we're talking about multiple denominations with, with sophisticated child abuse cover-ups. And it just breaks your heart and you hear these stories time and time again and you're like, we're not finding God in church. And a reputation is built. Painful rejection of people and judgment of others, past and present subjugation of women, past and present mistreatment of minorities, injecting politics into church, rarely a good idea arrogant belief that we are right and everybody else is wrong, and hypocrisy, moral failures and corruption of religious leaders. This is statistically why people are leaving the church. Study after study, interviewing thousands and thousands of people, why do you no longer go to church? It's because of these things. And you can't blame them, right? You just can't blame people. So if this is your opinion of church, or worse yet, if this is your experience in church, Fear not, because this is the exact same thing that Jesus went through. Jesus saw this entire list. He experienced it. In fact, he was himself abused by the religious institutions and religious leaders to the point of being crucified. And so he decided, as someone who is out for mercy, justice, and love, is he decided to take all of these religious systems and religious leaders who were perpetrating all of these terrible abuses on people, he was gonna do something about it. And so he, he taught he confronted, he preached, he even called out the broken systems that were abusing people in the name of God. And so there's a whole chapter on this, Matthew chapter 23, I won't read it, I'm just gonna take little excerpts of it. This is when Jesus is exposing how you're not finding God in this religious system, and here's what he says. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show, and they love to sit in seats of honor, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Hypocrites. They shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. They ignore the more important matters of uh, justice, mercy, and faith. They're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. Outwardly, they look like religious people, but inwardly, their hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Same stuff, 2,000 years ago. Same stuff, same corruption same abuse, 
same mistreatment in the name of God, and then they mistreated and abused and killed Jesus. This is as old as, as humankind itself, using church and using the name of God for self-gain or to move forward some kind of an empire. It's just old. It's just old. It's almost cliche. In fact, even preparing this message and delivering this message is like it's so cliche, it almost bores me now to look at the statistics. It almost bores me to, 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 to see the studies as to why people are leaving the church. It's so old and it's so tiring. But here's what Jesus said. 2,000 years ago, Jesus says, my people and my name are gonna be linked. Linked. So if my people are, are, are aligning with my heart and my vision, I'm gonna look pretty good. If my people are not aligned with my heart and my vision, I'm gonna look pretty bad. And so Jesus himself says, my people and my church, the world is not gonna be able to notice the difference. So we might say, okay, well, that's the church, but let's just focus on Jesus. Let's not focus on the church, let's focus on Jesus. That's easy to say, but even Jesus himself said, this is linked. John 17, he's praying for us all. He says, may they, my church, experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus says, the world is gonna know my love when my church loves each other. So my implication, message is clear, if we love each other well and love the world around us well, then Jesus is gonna be very popular and people will follow Jesus. If we don't love each other well, we don't love this world well, people will reject Jesus. Now, no pressure. <laughs> but who the church is will shout out who Jesus is. So if the church is kind of a mess in periods of time, people will reject Jesus. And that's what's happening right now. I wish it could be something different, but Jesus says that's the plan. That's the plan. Now, he doesn't tell us to be perfect. He just says to live with love, to live with the light of who I am. He doesn't say, if the church is perfect, then they'll know me. He says, no, if the church loves each other, they'll know me. He's not calling us to be perfect. He's not calling us to be buttoned up. He's not calling us to have it all together. He's kind of assuming you're gonna be a little bit of a mess, but love each other and love the world around you. And when we do, the name of Christ and the cause of Christ is gonna thrive. When we don't, it's gonna suffer. And the cause of Christ and the name of Christ is suffering because of the church. A news article popped up on my feed last week from The Atlantic. I love The Atlantic, my favorite periodical. The misunderstood reason millions of Americans stopped going to church. So of course, it's like, at first I rolled my eyes, another article about how the church sucks. <laughs> but I read it, I'm a pastor, so I started reading it, of course, it, it was fantastic and just all rings true. Here's the first sentence of the article. Nearly everyone I grew up with is no longer a Christian. So I started thinking about my own experience and all the people I went to youth group with at Rancho Church and I thought, okay, well, how many of those folks are still walking with, with God or in any way associated at all with any church? And, and that number is very, very small. Goes on to say that 40, millions, 40 million Americans have stopped going to church, the largest change in church attendance in American history. That is 15% of the US population used to go to church, now no longer goes to church over the past decade or so. I mean, that is an exodus like you would not believe. Statistically incredible 
the rate at which people are leaving the church. He says, the change is bad news for America as a whole. Participation in religious communities generally correlates with better health outcomes and longer life, higher financial generosity, and more stable families, all of which are desperately needed in a nation with rising rates of loneliness, mental illness, and alcohol and drug dependency. In other words, the author here is saying, societies need religious communities. Societies need healthy religious communities, statistically. If a society has healthy religious communities that are really doing well and, 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 and accepting people and welcoming people into this vibrant community of support, culture will be better. So as people are running away from the church like it's on fire, by the tens of millions, society itself is gonna be weaker. In a new book, The Great Dechurching, I think the author of the article wrote that book, uh, it finds that religious abuse and corruption in churches have driven people away. So he's just basically reiterating the studies from uh, Pew Research and Barna Group and all kinds of, of organizations that have statistically identified why people are leaving the church, abuse and corruption, we got it. But he says there's, there's one other thing to think about, and this resonated with me as well. Contemporary America is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system uh, leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life. American culture simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or life together. In other words, the entire uh, sort of capitalistic and consumeristic culture in America that has built a great country, an innovative country that has contributed so well globally in every field, the system itself in America is designed for success, designed for prosperity, designed so you can have opportunity and to enjoy professional success and economic success. And then you add to that um, a very understandable obsession for our kids to have success and for our kids to achieve uh, monetary success, educational success, you name it, right? The whole system is designed to pack in the activities that get us to a place of success. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. All I'm saying is, according to this article and many studies, is that it pushes us into lonelier places. And it leaves very little room for the kind of community that connects us with each other and in this instance, connects us with God. Very, very little room is left. We are so busy striving for success. The underlying challenge for many is that their lives are stretched like a rubber band about to snap and church attendance ends up feeling like an item on a checklist that's already too long. Now, some of you might have experienced that this morning, right? You woke up and it's a Sunday morning and you think to yourself, church, 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 rancho church. It's always super awesome when I go. I know you said that, <laughs> but do I really wanna go? Thumbs up, thumbs down. You look to your spouse, church today, what do you think? Maybe we do online, which is totally fine. Totally fine. <laughs> oh, we can catch it later in the week. I mean, it's all like there's no go, no go. How's everybody feeling? Everybody got the sniffle? Okay, we're staying. And just that, are we running late? I mean, all the stuff involved in just getting from one place and going someplace in the morning and all the kind of hassle that goes with it, right? As life is already busy, and is this just another checklist on, okay, we're gonna go to church. As a family, we're just gonna do it. And you go, and hopefully you do have a good time, right? But if it feels like a checklist, it's because there is just so much activity going on and it kind of pushes things to the side. The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life that has left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to live in a community with other people. 
And so uh, we've been called the, the lonely nation, and this is a reason why. And one of the reasons, you've got the, you know, the corruption of the church and the betrayal of the church and the hypocrisy of the church, all the cliche things which are very real. I don't find God there. And then you have all of the stuff in our culture that is driving us to success and achieve and more and more and more. And so that also pushes maybe finding God in church to the side. So the church has, has two problems, right? Finding God in church has two problems. One, the church has largely failed to represent Jesus by its abuses, hypocrisy, and arrogance. And two, the entire culture isn't set up to incorporate church community. That's all. That's all we have to overcome. Thank you for laughing, you two. That was great. It makes me feel good. So that's the hard part. I'm sorry, that was the easy part. Criticizing is the easy part. The harder part is to say, okay, well, what are we gonna do, right? How can people find God in church again? And I'm telling you, for me and our board of elders and our pastoral staff and our key volunteers and our hundreds of volunteers, it's like, this is really the question. We know people are running away from church like it's on fire. So happy to see you all here today. And seriously, I, I, wanted, I wanna be very serious. The fact that you would go through all you had to go through to get here, <laughs> It's, it's awesome. It really is awesome. And thank you for doing that. Thank you for making it a priority. Online people, you made it a priority as well. For those of you who are checking this out later in the week, you too, right? Taking a little bit of time to just be a part of a community, live or online or even, you know, nationally, to just check in and to say, I'm a part of this place. It means a lot. And together we're asking ourselves, how can people find God in church again? For the 40 million that left over the last decade, for the millions of others who have really not found God in church, but have found exactly the opposite. They found rejection and they found judgment and they found hypocrisy and they found corruption and they found abuses. Is there an on-ramp back to church? And our answer should be, well, we hope so. Let's give it a try. Let's give it a try. Now for the last half a century, some of the brightest minds in religion and in philosophy and in church leadership have been racking their brains. How do we get people back to church? Because this exodus has been happening for about a half a century, worse now than ever before. So everything everybody has tried has not worked to get people back. So there's all, always discussion about how can people come back? Not to grow churches again. That's, that cannot be the priority. I think that maybe has been the priority and has been some of the problem is you're trying to build you know, these empires. And I've gotta be honest with you, as a young pastor, I got sucked into that big time. More people, more buildings, more budget, more church plants, let's go, let's go, let's grow, grow, grow. And, and getting sucked into that and, and contributing to that and we've had our moments of success in that and it, it, honestly, it's kind of fun. But it, it doesn't sustain. So at what point do we get back to, I guess, more the roots of the kind of community that God has called us to? And so I'm just gonna share some ideas. I do not have the answer. I'm not writing the book, right? And if I did write a book, no one would care. Um, we're just gonna exchange some ideas on how people can find God in church again. Uh, maybe you'll like these, maybe you won't. First and foremost, make church Jesus-centered. This is a theme here at Rancho over the last year, at least really diving into this Jesus-centered, Christocentric church Thursday uh, Summer Seminary is all about this, Jesus-centered, Christocentric church. And, and there isn't a church around that wouldn't say they're Jesus-centered, but there's a real thing going on about this, real study, real examination, real Bible study, real work on what does Jesus-centered mean, as opposed to churches that might be Bible-centered, and that's a thing. Churches that might be church-centered, you know, we're moving forward the traditions of our church and our denomination, right? 
as church-centered, as opposed to Holy Spirit-centered. And there's a place for all this. And sometimes people need various things in various times. There are churches, you know, to be honest, that are more pastor-centered. I would not recommend that here. There are churches that can be power-centered. You know, we need to get to the front and take our country back. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that we can center our churches on. But what we're exploring, and there's a critical mass of theologians and scholars and pastors and church leaders and just wonderful people who go to churches saying, can we sort of recapture or explore a Jesus-centered church? Well, what does that mean? A couple ideas. Can we try to do what Jesus did? And I use the word try with an intentional humility, is none of us are gonna nail this, none of us are gonna figure it out, but can we try? Can we give it our best effort as a church to do what Jesus did? If people love Jesus and they do, but they're running away from church like it's on fire, maybe Jesus-centered and let everything else kind of go to the side, maybe Jesus-centered is, would be the, the greatest thing around, right? Again, not to grow any church, but to bring people to a relationship with God where they're actually finding God in church again. So let's try to do what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? I mean, this is like a no-brainer. He served people. He served people. Particularly the poor, the sick, the lonely, and the rejected. It's just what he did. Like most of the time, he was serving people, helping people in need. When Jesus was introducing his ministry, famously, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me, for he has anointed me, he's called me, he set me apart to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, and the oppressed will be set free. Jesus is introducing his ministry and said, I have been called, set apart by God, to serve the poor to bring mercy and justice to the oppressed. That's why I'm here. You turn the page and that's what he does his entire ministry. So if we're gonna be a Jesus-centered church, what do we need to do? That, serve the poor, serve the sick, serve the lonely, welcome the rejected. That's what we just need to do. And so Rancho, you know, was trying. We're just trying. Started the rescue mission, Rancho Domicidus, a village for single moms and feeding people who are hungry and street-level intervention for those without a house and, you know, just really trying. How many people can we serve well? Jesus also unified a divided world. Jesus intentionally, all I have to do is read the book of John. The book of John is, is about Jesus intentionally breaking every cultural and religious barrier. He just kicks it right down and it's, it's quite a sight. He broke down the religious barrier, he broke down the race barrier, he broke down the gender barrier, he breaks down the economic barrier, he just breaks them all down. He says, I'm bringing the world to God the Father through me. That's what I'm doing. And so wherever people sense that they're apart from God, Jesus is going right through. Wherever we're divided from each other, Jesus is going right through. Uh, very famously, the, the woman at the well. She's Samaritan, the wrong race. She's a woman, the wrong gender. Men were not supposed to talk to women in public. Jesus just breaks all the rules. The woman was surprised, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman, why are you asking me for a drink? She is correcting Jesus, you shouldn't be talking to me. You're Jewish, I'm Samaritan. You're a man, I'm a woman. We shouldn't be having this discussion. Jesus says, whatever. <laughs> Beautiful, amazing discussion with her, affirming her, letting her know that she's forgiven, letting her know that she's welcome in, in the kingdom of heaven, welcome by her heavenly Father, and she's free to worship wherever she wants. It's not on the holy mountain of Zion in Jerusalem. It's right there in your backyard in Samaria. Beautiful, beautiful, breaking down the barriers, uniting a divided world. Jesus was also a friend of sinners. So if we're gonna do what Jesus did, we're gonna serve people, we're gonna unite a divided world, and we're gonna be a friend of sinners. 
One of my favorite verses, because I just love how absolutely, ridiculously offensive the ministry of Jesus was to religious people, is that on display. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. I love that passage so much, I kind of, with a smile on my face, will say, if Rancho Church is not known as being drunkards, gluttons, and friends of sinners, we're doing something wrong. That's the reputation of Jesus. All the religious judges were looking at Jesus. He's feasting and drinking with these people that we have condemned, godless people, and Jesus is out there having a good time, which you want to offend a religious person, have a good time. And hang out with everybody. You're gonna get all the people all bent out of shape. You wanna do what Jesus did, serve people who are in need, unite a divided world, and become a friend of people labeled sinners. Do what Jesus did. Then try to teach what Jesus taught. Try to teach what Jesus taught. Not as easy as it might sound, there's a lot underneath that, but Jesus taught the heart of God. First and foremost, he teaches the heart of God. Every single time Jesus is teaching or preaching, he's establishing our relationship with God and defining that relationship. Two weeks ago, we landed on this. I'll just breeze by it. Uh, the prodigal son, it's just our story, right? This wayward, sinful son. And yet when the wayward son was far off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Jesus says, that's the heart of God. And while the whole world is saying, you take that wayward, sinful son who brought shame to this family, you take that son before a judge and that son deserves to be condemned and even put to death. That was the religious law. Jesus says, that's not God. He's not judge, he's father. Teach the heart of God. And then teach how to love like God. Teach how to love like God. Jesus spends a lot of time on this, John 13, 34. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. This is the one to pay attention to, not the others. This is the one that encompasses them all. Love each other just as I have loved you, so you should love each other. Love each other. And then Jesus doesn't just say, oh, it's just some feeling. It's just some subjective feeling, love. No, he says, I'm gonna show you how to love. I'm gonna teach you how to love. I'm gonna model how to love. And then he gives and he sacrifices for the benefit of others. And then he takes care of himself and retreats and re rejuvenates and gets with his friends. And then he serves and he sacrifices and he gives and he's generous. He pays a heavy price He's rejected by his own hometown, later arrested and, and, and killed, crucified, because he loved the way he loved. And he loved to the very end. So let's try to do what Jesus did, and let's try to teach what Jesus taught. Teach the heart of God and teach how to love. Let's also try to build what Jesus built. Let's try to build what Jesus built. And what did Jesus build? He was building something that would last not only every generation, but throughout eternity. He's building what he called the kingdom of heaven. A whole new reality on earth. That's different than a political kingdom, different than a religious kingdom. He says, we're building the kingdom of heaven on earth. Famously, Jesus commands us to pray, may your kingdom come soon, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is building the kingdom of heaven here on earth. So as a Jesus-centered church, as a way to maybe have people find God in church, it is try to do what Jesus did, try to teach what Jesus taught, and try to build what Jesus built, which is the kingdom of heaven on earth. What is true of heaven? How can we make it true here? What makes heaven heaven? Love and grace and forgiveness and goodness and kindness. Let's make that a reality here where there's no division between us and God, no division between us and each other. Well, let's make that a reality here.
wherever people are destroying their lives, can we come alongside of them and say, hey, you know, maybe there's a better way to go here? In love, not in judgment, but in love. What's true of heaven, we can make true here by building what Jesus built. So in order for people to find God in church again, we can be a Christ-centered community, we need to be a welcoming community, a welcoming community. Now there's not a church on earth that doesn't think they're welcoming. We think we're welcoming, every church thinks they're welcoming. And that's true, you come to church and you're gonna have smiles and you're gonna be you know, welcomed into the building and, and hopefully maybe have an opportunity to make a few friends. Every church is gonna be welcoming. Here's what I mean by welcoming. There are millions and millions and millions and millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people all over the globe who do not believe they're welcomed in church. Why? Because they made a mess of their lives. People who have made big mistakes do not feel welcomed in church. It's just a reputation. Church is for good people. Church is for holy people. Church is for people who, you know, kind of have their act together, and it's not for me. Those who doubt or struggle believing the whole religious pitch don't think they're welcomed in church because if they bring a doubt or they're a little bit cynical, a little jaded, a little, you know, they're, are you sure about that? They're not gonna feel welcome in church because church kind of has the reputation of you just believe what the pastor teaches and if you believe you, that's your church. If you agree with the pastor, that's your church. Please God, may that not be why one of you are here, right? This is a learning community growing together. I wanna spur ideas and spur conversation. I don't speak for God, I'm doing my best, I don't speak for God. And so, People who wanna use their brains and engage and, and maybe think about things a little differently or have some doubts or some cynicism, they don't feel they're welcome in church community. I won't spend any time on this, but you know why LGBTQ people do not feel welcomed in church. People who are ethnic minorities do not feel welcomed in church. It's just too culturally sort of disengaging for me. I don't see myself there. I don't see myself in leadership or on the stage. There are millions who don't feel welcome. So we might have a welcoming church, all smiles, but people don't feel welcome. But we can change that. We can welcome people through hospitality. This is intentionally understanding that yes, we might be kind as people are coming in, but are we actively sort of pursuing in our own relationships, not here, but out in the community, relationships with people who may not feel welcome in church? Not even toward the goal of coming to a worship service on a particular campus, but for the goal of, of making them feel welcomed by God because they're welcomed by you. People who might not buy all of their religious pitches, people who might be in the LGBTQ community, uh, people who might have made big mistakes and are wrecking their life, they might be addicted. If you build relationships with them and, and you or I build connections with them and if we're welcoming them with hospitality, the barrier they feel between them and God or the barrier they feel between them and a church community is gonna start slowly dropping. Welcoming people through hospitality. Romans 12, 13, be ready to help God's people, always eager to practice hospitality. Great, I, I can welcome God's people, no problem. Well, there's also Hebrews. Don't forget to show hospitality to absolute strangers, people who are very much not like you. They're not in your community, they're not in your church. How do we show hospitality? Hospitality means treating somebody else like a best friend, even though they may not be. Even though they may be a stranger, treat somebody like a best friend. Welcome people through hospitality and welcome people through joy. I hate the word joy, we just don't use it in everyday life. I haven't heard one people use the, one people, one person use the word joy in normal language. Um, but there is that word joy in the Bible, specifically in Acts chapter two, verse 46. And I want us to just close our time together by envisioning what it would be like to live a little bit of this out right here. They worshiped together, this is the brand new church, worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. 
This is the first church in Jerusalem. Jesus was just raised from the dead about seven weeks earlier, and here they are as a family of faith showing hospitality to each other in a true welcoming community, a Jesus-centered welcoming community. They spent time together, they invested time together, they, they were in each other's homes. Yeah, they were in the temples and they were in what we would call church buildings, but they spent time in each other's homes. They were honest with each other, they gave to each other as they had need and they experienced joy. And the way I would kind of frame that is there was life there. There was relational life there. There were smiles there and laughter there, right? And so is church known for being this welcoming? Is church known for having this kind of life, smiles and laughter? And so what we try here, and maybe sometimes we succeed and sometimes we don't, but is there life in two places at Rancho? Is there life here on, on campus? Are people feeling that hospitality, feeling that embrace? Is there some sense of connection when we're talking up here and some sense of connection through the messages? Are we smiling? Are we laughing at times? Are we enjoying each other? Can we be honest with each other? Can we be real for it with each other? Or do we need to feel as though we're you know, kind of meeting the expectations of religion and church? And we're dedicated to trying, and I keep using that word try. Try to do what Jesus did. Try to teach what Jesus taught. Try to build what Jesus built, the kingdom of heaven on earth. Try to be a welcoming community, a hospitable community to everyone, not just God's people, but the whole world, especially those who feel rejected by God and feel unwelcome in a church community. And to try to experience that in our, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. This church is not about this. This, I think, is about equipping and encouraging each other to shine a little bit of the light of Christ out in the world, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace with strangers on the street, just a little bit of the light of Christ. And I'm telling you, we need the light of Christ. This town, this city that is bitterly divided needs the light of Christ. This city needs love, this city needs grace, this city needs this kind of Jesus-centered, how can we bring people together? How can we share stories together? How can we help people in need together? How can we just teach the love of God together and practice the love of God together? How can we bring this third way so it's not all this and all this politically and religiously? How can we just lift up Jesus and let the world come to Christ? We can applaud that. Why not? But I'm telling you, it is not easy. And I don't even really know how to do that. I got some ideas and we'll share those ideas together but this is difficult. Having a diverse church community is very difficult. Having an open and honest church community is very difficult, just taking those guards down and expectations down. Serving each other and serving people in need is very difficult. Serving the world around us is very difficult. But if we can just learn together, grow together, and practice some things, Jesus-centered, welcoming, do what Jesus did, teach what Jesus taught, build what Jesus built, and we'll try that and we'll succeed, we'll try that and we'll fail, and we'll just kinda see how this goes. But just maybe the church can once again be a place where people find God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our time together. Uh, these are sometimes difficult concepts and, um, and oftentimes we don't know really what to do next. We see so many people running away from church that bears your name, the Christian church. And you were very clear through Jesus when you said that the world will know you if they see how we love one another.
And so, God, may we have uh, such a knowledge of your love and a belief and a faith in your love that we would practice that to each other and practice that to the world around us, that this would be a place that is fiercely Jesus-centered, trying to do what you did, trying to teach what you taught, trying to build what you built, a community that is welcoming, especially to those so many millions who feel like they're not welcome at church anymore. Would you give us that ability to build those bridges, not just here, but in every part of our lives so that there would be a little more of the light of Jesus in our community, in our country, and in our world. In his name we pray, amen.